Welcome to the Orangutan Podcast. I am your host, Anthony Porter. I'm Gary Shapiro. And journey under the canopy with us and through the woods as we discover the rainforest and its conservation. All right, you have moved on to the next episode. If you haven't heard the first few of this installment, please be sure to go back and check out the full story. Thanks. Oh, man, how neat. Um, yeah, but it was really the orangutans and the orangutan personalities that were so fascinating. And, you know, one of the first the first orangutan I worked with when I got there was, was this fully adult female named Rini. And she lived across the river. She was part of a population they wanted to rehabilitate away from the campsite. And so I would swim across and work with Rini almost on a daily basis teaching her science. So she was my first student. And it was unique because nobody had worked with an adult ape like this before. Mm -hmm. Normally they get the babies, the infants. You know, you want to, you know, from the standpoint of like language, we want to teach this ape language. Well, you want to start with a baby, just like a human baby would learn language. Well, nobody had ever worked with an orangutan uh, before in this way or an adult ape. So I figured, well, let me just swim across the river. And I did. <laughs> and she came out and I met her. And she was curious. So you physically swam across this river to meet this yeah, orangutan? Yeah. Wow. And yeah. what was it like? Old dog, new tricks? How, how, was, the, how was the difference? Well, it was... Um, just uh, my meeting uh, another person across the river. Wow. You know, and uh, an orangutan person. Um, I came bearing gifts. <laughs> so, you know, it was like, here I brought it some little bit of food. Uh, but more, more importantly, she allowed me to touch her hands. At first she, she recoiled a bit, but I was persistent. And I, you know, I was very gentle. And I made the sign for come like this, like, come to me, and I would come closer. And I kept track of all the effort that I did when I was teaching her science. And the way I kept track of it, because I swam across the river with no notebooks, nothing, just in my swimming you know, trunks, went across, <laughs> started communicating with her, started molding her hands. And so I grabbed some leaves and started keeping leaves with me as like, okay, this leaf was for cum and this one was for like scratch or whatever. Oh. And I would put my thumbnail print into the leaf as like one time I molded her hands. So you got to understand that molding their hands is the unit of training. So you would mold their hands, show them the referent, mold their hands, and then give them or do the action. Wow. And then you'd repeat this until they were able to do this on their own, move their hand, then you would come to them. So the training part is you walk them through. You could also imitate it, right? You could, mm -hmm. they could see that. But it was shown by Roger Fouts in his studies that um, the actual molding of the hands, you know, is more effective. And so I wanted to get uh, results much faster. <laughs> so having contact, was was part of that deal you had to actually physically grab the hand move it through the range of motions associate that with a referent whether it's food or an action and then repeat that until it was elicited without help 
And, and so this went on and I, ha I wanted to keep track of all my effort as a way to show how long does it take for this orangutan to learn a sign. So I took the leaves back, transcribed them at home, back at my place, and eventually got smart enough to bring like a notebook or a recorder mm. and did it that way as well. Still but swimming across the river at this point. I, I was swimming across the river for a while, put put the items in little bottles of hot sauce <laughs> that, you know, the empty <laughs> bottles that, that I brought across with the pineapples and the food. And I would sit down across the river on these on these logs or the or the wood and that was our classroom and she would come down I would call her name she would then come down and would spend up to an hour with me as I would be molding her hands teaching her signs and this was what I did for for almost two years and eventually of course I would take a a boat across the river, <laughs> one of the canoes. Um, and we went to a, a, a feeding station they had inside that became also one of the training areas. Mm. So it, it, it evolved over time. But that first day when I first met her, um, actually it was the second day of my arrival at Camp Leakey. I think I went across and started this. Wow. So I, I was just right out at the gate. I wanted to, I wanted to get to know this orangutan. I wanted to find out if, she could learn. And literally within a, within a few, few days, she was producing signs on her own. Amazing. And I was like, there's nobody here I could share this with. Eureka. And she was quite something. I mean, um, Rini, she was kind of a lazy orangutan. She would build ground nests. She wouldn't go up into the trees like most orangutans, but she would build them, you know, in the dry swamp. Huh. And uh, one day, it was like on July 7th, is it 7th? It was like almost like a week after I met her. Uh, she took me by the hand and walked me to one of her ground nests and laid back, spread her legs, and pulled me towards her. <laughs> and when she did this, I was shocked. I, you know, I didn't expect it. Okay. Um, this was after all the food had been eaten and she got tired of me just brushing her. She, she wanted something else. Mm -hmm. And so she, she literally showed me what she wanted and, uh, I had to turn her down. Oh, she must have been heartbroken. Uh, well, you know what they say, hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. <laughs> Oh boy, she I, she wasn't that bad, but she was cold to me mm. for like a day after that, or a couple of days after that. And I brought the food, and you know, years later, I I started to think about what what was I doing? I was basically courting her, I was bringing her food, and that that was her perception of it. I'm sure yeah. I was treating her special. I was grooming her. Yeah, wow. Uh, you know, with the red beard and treating her this way. You represented an adult when, when she was younger. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, I made a policy, you know, as a teacher not to have relations <laughs> with my students. So I made it very clear Very to her, noble, very noble. Very clear. We had to keep this professional and keep it, uh, uh, you know, formal in this way. So uh, we, I love it. we kept it ongoing. And again, I think over 18 months I worked with, with Rini. Mm -hmm. And um, she started inventing her own signs. Wow, really? That was that was something that um, 
a youngster probably wouldn't do as early. Mm-hmm. But because she had the motoric skills as an adult, she understood that by making a kind of a miniature version of the sign or of the action, it became a sign. So she would like touch me like you, and then she would scratch. She would just make a little scratching gesture at the location where she wanted it scratched. She wanted you to scratch her on that spot. And wow. I would scratch her. Yeah. And then she would do the sign for comb, like combing her hair. And I would take the comb out and comb her. Or groom. She would go, you, like touch, groom. And I would groom her. And you know, primates love to groom. Yeah. Right? But I know. I, I, yeah, I love it. You love it too. So, you know, when you go to a barber, we're getting groomed. You know, when you go to, <laughs> it's just human grooming, right? Yeah. But for, for primates... For many of the, uh, especially the social species, mm-hmm. grooming is like the glue of society. It helps bring them together, form relations, you know, and just the hands-on. It's it's a form of love, you know, giving love, right? Yeah, absolutely. And so uh, I would um, respond to her and I would groom her when she asked me to groom her. And this typically happened after the food was gone uh. and she was sitting back regurgitating because orangutans will regurgitate. And this is a very common thing. We see it in zoos and think it's, oh, this is aberrant behavior. No, they do this in the wild. They do this in the rehabilitant setting. What's the advantage of them having this done? Probably to reprocess the fruit, food. You know, they, oh. you know, some animals have a, like cattle have a rumen and they're reprocessing. Orangutans will regurgitate and they'll chew the food some more. And huh. it's probably- Second meal. Yeah, you know. Well, oh, first meal over. I guess that over. Could be and, and because they're processing um, leafy material as well as fruits, mm-hmm. and sometimes the waxes, you know, spending a more time in the gut might help it breaking it down, getting its nutritional. See, they love soap. <laughs> Orangutans love soap, and soap is what? It's fat, right? It's fat that's Eating the soap. Oh, they'll eat it, but they'll work it up into a lather. Oh. And so one of the things we always had to be careful of is having our soap pinched when we went to the river to go <laughs> bathing. You'd see this hairy hand show up from under the bridge, grab, you know, grab your, you know, go into your bucket and grab a bar of soap and head out. Well, it smells nice. You feel like if something smells great. But they love the lye soap. They would take the the most harsh soap and that was great for them as well. But yeah, you you know, bring in the the fragrant soaps and they would be gone. And (laughs) you would see the orangutans standing in the distance, taking chunks off and and handing it out to their buddies. Parsing out your soap. Parsing out the soap because what they wanted to do is they wanted to keep the soap and work up the lather and then slurp up the lather themselves. They didn't want... They didn't want you know anybody to take their lather. So rather than risk that, they would just bite off little chunks and pass it around so everybody could work up their own lather. Look at that. So for orangutans, I think that soap tastes like whipped cream. I could, you know, I could see that. Not that I'm going to try it. No, you but shouldn't that... try it. <laughs> yeah. and, and, you know, uh, it, it's not good for us. We're going to pause for just okay. one second while I check uh, the microphones and stuff. Sure but thing. we'll be back a little bit with Gary Shapiro. All right, and we're back with Dr. Gary Shapiro. And I know a lot of the times we're working in nonprofit organizations, you gotta wear a bunch of different hats. 
Has there been a, a role or a job that you just did not expect to put get put into uh, while you're out there in the rainforest that, that maybe is a little out there, a little bit different than what people would expect at home? You know, I, I'm the kind of guy who isn't averse to doing, you know, the sweeping as well as, you know, the leadership part of it. So it's, if you're running an organization and you're starting out, you got to do it all. And it's um, part of the part of the job. And, and so, you know, I've never shied away from it. Uh, you know, there are times where if you're out in the field, you might have to do something that could be considered dangerous. You might want to think about it before you do it and, mm-hmm. and, and prepare because, you know, you, you want to be healthy and you want to stay alive. And, you know, those could be taken away very quickly if you're not careful and you don't plan properly. So that's, that's my advice is, you know, plan it out and make sure you've got a good team and um, just try to execute the best way you can. Wow. Yeah, absolutely. So you've talked a little bit off air with me about, about you having to be on these patrols and, and going out in the rainforest to make sure yeah. that things are happening the way they should be. Right. What's, what's your thought process when, when you come upon maybe an, an, an operation that is illegal and, and you see the folks doing it? What, what would be your mode of action to make sure that things are taken care of? Well, again, you go with the authorities. Mm-hmm. Um, as as a guest in Indonesia, I, I didn't have the authority to do things like arrest people. Um, <laughs> right. I mean, there was a time where we I was on a patrol with the government officials going up a river um, looking for people who were illegally taking materials out of the national park. A national park, you're not supposed to take anything out, mm-hmm. not even leaves or anything like that. I mean, it's it's there for a reason. Mm-hmm. Um, and But, you know, people are desperate. Uh, some people are looking for an opportunity. And at this one point, we found these uh, uh, individuals who had the bark of a tree. They were going to sell the bark to make mosquito coils these mosquito repellent coils. So, you know, they, you can do it synthetically or you can get natural products to make a repellent for mosquitoes because mosquitoes are a problem, as you know. But um, it's illegal to take it out of the park. And we had uh, intercepted this uh, man and his uh, nephew. Um, And (laughs) so the, uh, the park authorities, along with the police, uh, confiscated the boat and and took these folks into a room where they addressed them and told them do you realize you're breaking the law and uh, this is what the park official said and then the police guy you know waved his gun and said you, you know you shouldn't be doing this right and then they asked me to come in and and <laughs> I said well yeah I'm from you know I'm the international guy and you should know this is not a good thing for, you know so I just offered my two cents right <laughs> saying yeah you probably shouldn't be doing this you know I the like world how is watching you know? the the guy with the gun was waving it around and then when that didn't work they're like all right Gary yeah well, get him <laughs> well I, I think they were all terrified right but the thing was um, they were let go mm. uh, it did no good to to try to um, you know put them in behind bars yeah, you want to be on the did. side of, of people yeah, that are in the area yeah. exactly and we've learned over the years that it's best to um, 
not go in with guns blazing, you know, with um, even there were times way back when when we would take the fishing nets of people who had put them into the area, the reserve. This is before it was a national park, I believe. And we would remove them. Um, and that was probably the wrong thing to do, uh, looking back at it now, because it didn't uh, improve our relations with the villagers. In fact, mm. they, you know, that was like, well, why, why are these Westerners, they get to go inside this area and we can't even get fish. Right, yeah, so that's you something can, you can understand, you know. Yeah. So from our perspective, we were just trying to protect the integrity of this reserve, you know. I mean, we thought we were doing the right thing. I think you got to look at things case by case when you're doing conservation and understand that that these communities are part of they could become the protectors of what you're trying to save. Yeah, in a perfect world that would be the role that they would take, yeah. Right. And this is why education is so important. This is why I evolved from doing the original work to the education work that, that the Orangutan Republic Foundation does. That's perfect. Well, let's, that seems like a perfect time to segue into the Orangutan Republic. Yeah. Uh, tell me the story about how, that, how that's grown. And, and now there's partnerships internationally, and this has grown into not just a, an education center, but something that really has inspired countless people to make sure they know about the rainforest. You want to talk on that a little bit? Yeah, I'd be happy to because, you know, um, when the Orangutan Republic was started uh, in 2004 as an education initiative, it was really the result of my spending um, many decades doing the original work that we described out in the field and then creating the first Orangutan advocacy, advocacy group called the Orangutan Foundation. Mm -hmm. whose main job was really to help do the rehabilitation work and some research. Um, and that was the kind of conservation that we were doing. Um, yes, protecting maybe the national park was part of that, that whole area. But we weren't spending enough time and money addressing the root cause, which, which is the lack of education, um, ignorance um, by, by people who just don't know about what the situation is. Fear, you know, fear of orangutans, fear of, of, you know, these animals that, you know, sometimes would wander into their property. Mm -hmm. uh, and so education, we saw, my wife and I, my Indonesian wife, Ingriani and I, we both felt that education was really the key and that by starting a new organization, we could address the root causes of what all the problems were that we were seeing for so many years. Mm -hmm. And and so that was the origin for the Orangutan Republic. Um, a few years later, we became a foundation. Uh, we started before even we became a foundation, the scholarship programs that have now blossomed. We have given out with, it's called the Orangutan Caring Scholarship Program. And we started with a single scholarship in 2006 in North Sumatra. This is where we started the Republic. We, we, we decided to work in North Sumatra where at the time orangutans were critically endangered. We now know that all orangutans and all their populations are critically endangered. But at the time I wanted to, my wife and I wanted to focus on that population because they were looked at to be most imminently, you know, facing extinction. Right. Yeah. So we, we decided to uh, work with the local uh, 
NGOs that we had gotten to know. We did site visits. We met with the Orangutan Information Center and agreed to start the first scholarship. And we gave it out to this, uh, this delightful young lady who uh, got, went on to get her degree in forestry and later became the um, corporate social responsibility officer for one of the major banks in Indonesia. Look at that. So, you know, the first lady out the door, she gets her degree and now she's in this position of authority to help other, other businesses find ways to give back to society, to, to back to the environment. Right. And so for, for us, that was like, this is a great idea. Let's keep it going. Let's keep investing in education, especially those who want to go off and not get a business degree, but encourage degrees in the natural sciences. Because to understand the sciences, you got to get the education. And to become good stewards, you have to understand the principles of ecology, how things work. So rather than, you know, business as usual, get another business degree out there, let's get more degrees in biology, forestry, and then eventually veterinary science. So those are the three areas that we focus in on. And we partner with local NGOs that we trust to form uh, agreements with the local universities. And then we promote these scholarships. We, it's competitive. They are up to four years or longer for the vet degree. They mm. get an extra, extra year for their internship. So we want to actually graduate practicing vets, not just get a degree, but actually get that internship. Yeah. So they can get out there and work in the zoos or work in the field. Many of them go off to help the uh, orangutan groups do the rescues and, and help with maybe going into the clinics to help out in that regard too. So this program has evolved over the years and now we have given out 200 and I believe 16 uh, scholarships and we're gonna be giving out 28 new ones this year. Just incredible. Uh, and, and, the, and again, the, those students who graduate, they become advocates for orangutans and for the type of activities the nonprofits are doing in those areas. So, you know, when they're getting their degree, when they're going through school, not only do they go to the classrooms to learn about the science, right? They're going into the village communities to teach the kids about biology and about ecology. They teach them about um, how to live in harmony with the land, organic farming, things like that. Wow. And then during the disasters, they come in also and help out, like when the fires come through mm -hmm. or during the pandemic helping out. So not only do they get a good education at the university, but they learn about how to work with communities. And this is particularly important on the island of Borneo. So I'm so proud that we have these students who come from uh, the background of, of a, a Dayak um, culture. These are the original people, the First, first Nations of, of Borneo, mm -hmm. uh, the people who have historically protected the forests because of their the knowledge that they have created and they have passed down generation to generation. And with this, and with this knowledge, you're giving the power back to them to, yes. to continue yes. their journey with that. Especially women. 
uh, we give out almost equal amounts of scholarships to men and to women. Wonderful. So we want to encourage women to get, you know, to go beyond just, you know, staying at home and having children to actually pursuing a career mm -hmm. and doing something that they love to do uh, that will be contributory to the future. So this is part of what we're, we've been doing. This is one of the programs. And I'm very, very proud of this particular program. Um, just as I am working up in North Sumatra with the, our, our team doing what we call the Community Education and Conservation Program, CECEP, C-E-C-P, where we're actually uh, funding young conservation educators that go out to the villages and sub-villages at the perimeter of the Gunung Lusur National Park. Mm -hmm. And this park is part of the Lusur ecosystem, which is a um, UNESCO-identified special place, the only place in the world where orangutans, tigers, elephants, and rhinoceros live together. On an island. On this island. Amazing. Yeah, and these are charismatic animals. And again, before we go on to further, we should remember the charismatic animals are the ones we are we like to see, mm -hmm. but they are umbrella species for so many other animals that are not as interesting or eye-catching, but as important for like the pollination of these trees and of the recycling of nutrients and many, many relationships that we just are barely starting to understand. And what are some of these lesser uh, charismatic or char characteristic animals that you Well, examples would be bats. You know, the yeah. bats that are the pollinators of so many, um, you know, trees and, and the fruits of those trees. For example, the durian, my mm. favorite fruit. Your favorite. Right. I hear, I really want to try it. Well, you got to try it with me if you really want to learn to love it. Should I bring a nose plug? No, 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 no. <laughs> but my point is, is that the, the bats are the pollinators okay. for durians. And durians are the orangutan's favorite fruits. So again, you know. We have to understand that, you know, bats are kind of vilified these days mm -hmm. as carriers of diseases. Um, but they're also important pollinators, just as so many other insects are. You mm -hmm. know, whether they're bees or flies, you know, they have these um, sweat bees that actually produce honey. But they're kind of an annoyance and a nuisance to people. But now they're being farmed as a source of honey. Um, and so part yeah. of what we're doing in our programs, uh, working with local people on the perimeter of the park is to help them find alternatives to destructive practices. Oh, I so, see. you know, you can educate people in school, but you can, it's also important to educate people with practical skills that help them improve their livelihood at the perimeter of the park, because we want these people not to become destroyers and you know and make incursions into the park but to stay on their plot of land and to do better and to improve their livelihood so they can send their kids to school mm -hmm. and and not have to like resort to things like opening up uh, this forest area where nobody's watching and plant oil palm or some other crop because that is what's nibbling away at the perimeter of the park and we want to make sure that we can address this issue in a humane way right and getting these different practices that that are helping the environment aren't 
really compromising practices. It's just changing that institutionalized idea of of how to move your life forward without having to destroy the planet. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So, you know, this is this is part of our solution, you know, and again, it's it's two programs, but they're two, I think, very important programs. Uh, we also have a fellowship program so that if some graduate wants to go into the forest and, and study orangutans or rain or rainforest ecology, mm -hmm. we'll give them a, a, a fellowship. And it's done in the name of my, my mother who passed away a number of years ago. Uh, and it's also can be found on the website if, if there's a student who wants to pursue that that fellowship. And that website is orangutanrepublic.org. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Wonderful. Yeah, just for the yeah. plug there. <laughs> yes. Well, Wonderful. Going forward with conservation, I know that people are, it, it's different nowadays maybe, and, and you've seen these conservation methods perhaps even change or stay the same. What's been some things of note that you've seen change over the last however many years that you've been doing this to a point where you might see a different approach happen in the future? Well, I think um, we talked early about like trying to keep people out of the park, right, and, and and making that as the big big thing. But I think engaging with local communities mm -hmm. um, and trying to find out what their needs are, and not just coming in with like this one solution fits all, uh, as we've seen, like you know, big institutions would come in, like the World Bank, and say, well, you guys need this dam, or you need to have this mega project electrification. This will make your life much better without even asking them what they wanted, mm. you know? And again, working from the bottom up, I think is the, the best way to go. Um, top down, you know, you, you run into some problems. Yeah, yeah, maybe you can scale faster, mm -hmm. but scaling and not recognizing the uniqueness of every different community is a mistake because everybody has their own issues, their own problems, uh, their own geography, their own soil types, their own, yeah. problems within their own local community and the top downs might not recognize that difference. no they no. bypass that typically right because all they're looking for is to check off a box at the end of the year that they distributed this money so working with local groups that work intimately with the village chief the village folks themselves the teachers in the villages to find out what is their needs that to me is the most important thing we've learned is to do that and then to invest more time than just go in for a year, see the program executed and then walk away to the next village. No, you've got to spend a number of years there and make sure that it's taken root mm -hmm. and it will can sustain itself. I see. That is what we have to do. We And this is what I want to continue to do, which is why our CSEP program from the beginning was slated to last for five years. At the end of five years, I want those young conservation educators to be able to stand on their own feet, write their own grants. They can write one to us too, but they can look around the planet for other funders and to be able to show that they can be effective in what they're doing and make that case. And then I want to start to invest in other groups. And I'm looking at women-led groups too that may not even have a status as an organization, but I want to see if they can become a kind of an, a small organization that we can trust and work with and invest. Because I really believe that women 
when empowered can do amazing things. And I want to see that happen around the perimeter of that park. How amazing. Yeah. So people, in order to conserve and be inspired to actually preserve these areas, they have to first be welcome that part of them in, in, in some way where they get connected to that land. And what have you seen, I mean, for the people listening at home that are thinking either I want to get into it more or I feel like I, I want to renew my vows of getting more into the environment, what are some things that maybe you've done that have, that have helped you kind of bring yourself back into the inspired, based foundation of helping out the, the natural world? I, I really think you got to go out there and see it with your own eyes. I th you know... You can see videos and videos are nice, you know, but you don't really feel the humidity. You don't have a chance to see eye to eye with somebody who's out there or see an animal mm -hmm. uh, in its natural environment. Um, for me, going back is how I kind of reinvigorate myself and my passion to do what I do. Um, I look forward to it. I, in this two years of being absent because of the pandemic right it's it's been really challenging you know and um thankfully we have our teams out there doing the work but at the same time um unless i get out there and and experience it myself uh it's just not the same and i and i say that to anybody who has the ability and i realize not everybody can just fly across the planet and do this but you don't even have to go across the world to be involved and you know, helping the environment. You know, we have places locally that need help. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I would recommend people do that as well, is find a place that, that needs help and to learn about it, figure out who's working in it, figure out what works, what doesn't work. And I like to tell people that even one person can make a big difference. Absolutely. You, you yeah. don't have to wait to be told what to do. You can, you can see and you can figure this out and find um, support in what you want to do. And you want to build a, um, a plan and then execute that plan. And I think that um, we shouldn't feel like we have to wait until we're given permission all the time. Oof, yeah. Because, you know, if, if you do that, you'll be waiting a long, long time. Oh, yeah, right? absolutely. So you know, it's like get out there, see what's going on, see what moves you. Because there's some things that uh, might really pull at your heartstrings and you want to get involved. And then find the, the team that can help you make that happen. <laughs> because you, you're going to, you know, even though you, it's going to be you driving it, you're going to need some help, some facilitators to open some doors or to, you know, lead you in the right direction. Yeah. And all these foundations, they started with people that just they had the idea to do it. You know, yeah. it was the one person that decided to make the difference. Of course, it... it, it, it it took people down the line to, to help you out, but everything starts with the idea of that one person first. And we're talking one of them today. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, for me, this is, you know, I'm 70 years old. I feel like I'm a kid <laughs> and it's only because, uh, you know, I work with young people and again, I, I feel inspired to go back out into the field mm. and, and to do this, even though my body may be creaking up a little bit, you know, it's not as... <laughs> Getting out of bed is not as easy. Well, you from know. what I, you've been telling me, you've been doing yoga quite a bit, huh? I, I do that. My wife uh, is my guru. On you got that. one on me on that one. <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's therapeutic yoga. It's not really the, the really super strenuous yoga. Mm. Uh, and, you know, I think it's important that, 
you know, yoga is, is a form of mindfulness, um, of training of your body, and of course, breathing. It's probably some of the most important things you can do is uh, just being mindful about what you do and being kind about it as you go through your your life. Yeah. So for me, you know, I try to um, involve people who want to get involved. Uh, I want to make sure that um, they have a chance to feel ownership in the process, particularly with this organization and our volunteers. And it just means a lot to me to be able to sit and, and even over Zoom, work with volunteers on projects that help to promote the mission of the organization. And this is really what it's all about. From this side of the ocean, we can only do what we can do here. Mm-hmm. You know, you go over into Indonesia, you go into the forest, it's, it's right now for a limited period of time. We really have to empower those people who are living out there for years and years. The That's local the long-term people. plan. That's the long-term plan. And then also working with groups like the Orangutan Project, which we've partnered with since 2015. And we serve as their fiscal chapter here in the United States as TOP USA. We are expanding our portfolio programs that help get conservation at, at a higher level, at a level that is more traditional, boots on the ground. And, and ultimately, we're hopeful that we can successfully manage large tracts of forest land mm-hmm. for future generations. This is one of the things we're working on as well, is working with the government, um, applying for concessions that we can manage uh, as conservation concessions so that future generations will have land, plus the species that we're releasing, like orangutans, will have a place that they can feel protected in. Absolutely. Yeah. And while that's all happening out there, you said for the last two or so years, you've been kind of sequestered here in the U.S. for for pandemic reasons. What's been keeping you inspired and and passionate about the outdoors? uh, Anything? Uh, well, just the, the hope that I can get back out there. Wow. The longstanding <laughs> hope. There it is. Yeah. You have to have hope. And I think, uh, that's the other thing I, I really look forward, um, when I see Jane Goodall, she, she's an inspiration because she talks about the importance of hope. You know, you can look around the world with all that's been happening and, and feel despondent. But I think that ultimately we, we have to understand that we if we keep working at this, we, we build this kind of critical mass of people who, who are hopeful, uh, we can get through this period. And um, we just have to reflect upon in, more in ourselves about what's driving us, why are we doing this, and realize that we're doing it for a bigger reason than ourselves, and that we collectively we can do a lot of good. And I think Working with with non-government organizations is is really one of the big solutions. It's not just you know big corporations or big institutions. Mm-hmm. It's small ones working together, kind of in parallel, and uh, you know working and networking. Um, that's how we get the job done. That's synergy, absolutely. Yeah. Like even if it's the not not the same foundation. Like you were talking about at Camp Leaky, you walk in and there's there's sun bears and there's macaques and there's also orangutan. I mean, different foundations across the planet can still work together regardless of the the background of it. You know, this the putting it all together into one deck is so powerful. Yeah, yeah, and I get caught, I get contacted by so many people um, every week that want to work on different kinds of projects, and it's like you want to 
have that conversation. You want to see if it can grow some legs and actually move forward. Mm -hmm. You know, the very fact that we're doing this podcast is an example of that. Boom. Look yeah. at that. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, there's so many people who've got projects going on that are, that are so creative and they're doing good work. And mm -hmm. so we want to inspire each other and we want to keep this, uh, this party going. That's the hope. You know, you want to, you want to stay fo focused and positive and, and not spend too much time looking at the news and, and getting down. Yeah. It's very easy to do that. And, uh, it's, it's encouraged in, in our society to keep doing that. So yes, yeah, taking a step back, like you said, I found that for sure. It sometimes it feels like willful, willful ignorance to take a step back from watching the news all the time. But I mean, perspective-wise, 100 years ago, people didn't have the news every single day, mm -hmm. you know? You, you would get the town crier once every right. however long, and, and that was enough, you know? Having hourly news updates might be a little much, in my opinion. Digital but, overload. Digital you, overload, you know, we, yeah. we can get, it, It'll actually affect us psychologically. We know that. So unplugging and being able to get into nature is so important for our well-being. And I think that we just have to do it wherever we are, even if it's not in the jungles of Borneo. You know, it's closing your eyes and finding that place and, you know, having that durian uh, <laughs> in your mind, you know, remembering those 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 wonderful memories you have. Mm -hmm. I think it's really, really important for your well-being. There we go. You can pop on another episode of this podcast, take a drive and go out to somewhere beautiful today. See what you can expect and... Tell us what you find at the orangutanrepublic.org. Wonderful, Dr. Shapiro. Thank you so much for hanging out with me today. I really appreciate the uh, first couple episodes getting filmed. How do you feel about it? I feel great. I think it's a great medium and look forward to the next one. Absolutely. You can look for us at the orangutanrepublic.org. My name is Anthony Porter. You can find me at Outdoor Anthony on Instagram. And if you have any questions for us, feel free to contact us on the website. Thanks so much and have a wonderful rest of your day. Don't forget to go out there. Thanks so much.